Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you here. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, head on over to officehours.global. That's our web portal uh, for more information and links about the show. Our first hour, always a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer audience-submitted questions. So that's your cue. Uh, You can get into our Mukana system and populate it with your questions. That's part one of the system. The second part of the system is for you to vote on those questions. And the questions that get the most upvotes are the topics that we start with, get to earlier, and discuss at more length. We always have uh, our first hour run by your questions. The second hour is usually a closer look at something. And today we're doing a basic discussion of shot framing. We're going to talk about how you design your actual camera shots to best communicate the intent of what you're trying to do with your video or movie or any kind of content that you're making, corporate presentation. But this is the first hour where we address audience questions, so let's dive right in. Mitch, what's our first question for today? Thank you, Bill. Uh, first question in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Andy wants to know, thoughts on the Godox FL60 flexible LED light for Zoom meeting use? And there's a big link to it. Now let's start with Courtney Gooden. Courtney. Well, I guess it'd be good for Zoom meeting use. If you take a look at it here, I'll bring up a picture. It's a, uh, a kind of a foldable or rollable uh, LED panel that is about uh, 11 by 17, and it has this uh, 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 framing, like a, like a tent-type frame or uh, flexible little sticks that hold it out to keep it flat, uh, and then it folds up and fits into that uh, uh, little case that you see at the top there. So it looks like an interesting uh, collection. It seems to be fairly cheap. Uh, it doesn't say, I haven't read far enough to know if it's bicolor or not, or if it's just uh, you choose whether it's daylight or tungsten. I, I hope that it is bicolor. It says uh, you can adjust variable color range from 3,300 to 5,600. So it looks like it'd be great to travel with. Uh, you could use it in a Zoom meeting in a fixed situation, but you're kind of wasting the fact that uh, it folds up and travels easily. Uh, and I would wonder about the reliability of it. I don't know, Alex, if you have any of these and put it into uh, into use, how reliably they're going to be after you roll them up. The wiring could break, you know, roll them up and unroll them and roll them up and unroll them. I wonder how long it's going to take before one of the little connector wires breaks between the LEDs because those LEDs are in series. Alex? Yeah, it, it's kind of a, a halfway between everything, <laughs> I guess is what I would say. You know, so so we use we use a lot of flexible lights that are similar to this. I think we're using light pads or whatever. We, we looked at them at, at, at Cinegear. Um, but those those we've used and we've, we've brought those in and those are super durable, but they're a lot more expensive. So to get to Courtney's, I don't know how reliable a less expensive version. The ones that we use are probably three or four thousand up to five or six thousand dollars each. And they're very robust and they they work great. And uh, we really like them because they're they're very light to load in <laughs> and then you open them all up and they all pop pop out. But we're doing four foot by four foot and, you know, other things like that. So for these smaller ones. I think the problem is I think it's a lot of money to spend if you're going to leave them. So if, if you're in a studio, I wouldn't use them because I would. you can spend less money and get a lot more power and a lot more coverage uh, with something that isn't flexible like that. That's really designed to be packed. And the problem for me is that the way I pack it, I think of everything through a filter of can I fit this all into a... 1510 because I'm traveling. Uh, so as a, you know, I'm trying to roll that up. If you're not worried about that, 
Um, these could be good little flexible lights. Um, it, the coverage, uh, 17 by 11, isn't too bad. Um, you know, I think that I usually try to get a little bit larger than that, but even when I travel, I'm using the Pavo, Pavo Tube 6Cs from Nanlite, and those are much smaller than that. Um, so, so I think that you could get some good coverage. I'd probably get a pair of them, um, and then I'd figure out how to, how to have, how I'm going to take them. It's a lot of, I guess what I would say, the other concern I would have on the road, <clears throat> now, if I'm setting up for something, I have time. That's great. There's a lot of little fiddly bits. When I saw that that kind of explosion, the the kind of the knolling view of it, where you see the knoll, you know, uh, where you see all the pieces out, I was like, well, that's that's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. A lot of pieces to lose. A lot of pieces to put together. And so it's not something that you just kind of set up and go. So I don't think I would. I guess what I'd say is I'd love to test one. I have a feeling that I probably wouldn't use this product either at home or on the road. So that's why I said it's kind of a, uh, I don't know where I'd put it. Um, it's, it's probably not quite enough of one thing or the other. Uh, TJ Asher. Uh, yeah, I think Alex kind of hit the key point here. If you are after portability, if that's your primary goal, this is a reasonably inexpensive uh, way to go. If you're looking for a per more permanent setup, then I think there are less expensive panels of equal quality. The newer uh, brand comes to mind. Um, I've got a couple of those. Uh, right now I'm being lit by a uh, a light that's approximately one by two, a similar size. So it just gives you an idea of the light that um, it would throw on you. Um, but again, if it's portability you're after, there aren't a lot of really affordable, super portable lights anymore. Mitch Hill. Yeah, I agree. I think the, the portability factor is there. But my concern would be as a key light, how soft can it get? And just by the virtue of the, the physics of uh, being on a flat, uh, flexible piece, unless you're putting a piece of diffusion in front of it, um, I'd be afraid about how soft the light can go. Like my uh, little nan light over here has the ability to focus the light to the edges, which gives, bounces out and comes out pretty soft. Uh, my Astra soft light uh, does that, and those are big things and not very portable. But um, again, it's you got to weigh your uh, alternatives. Yeah, most everybody here is thinking about it in terms of lighting a person, and I agree with everything that's been said about its limitations and the rest. I would look at that and go, hmm, tabletop, product lighting. What could you do that would be interesting in that in terms of, you know, we've seen the classic strip box approach to a wine bottle where you want to make a highlight that emphasizes the curve of that. I would think that a foldable or uh, foldable, uh, a movable light that you could kind of shape might be an interesting thing in tabletop products. So there might be a place for it there. Courtney, you want to come back and finish up? Yeah, yeah I thought of another use for it is that because it's uh, flat, very flat and flexible, you could use it uh, and pin it to a wall with push pins. If you're in a location where you can't get a stand in, you're in a real tight location, you need to put a, a large light that looks like a window beside somebody, just unroll a couple of these things and put four pushpins into the wall and hang them over the little grommets that are on the ends of, uh, that are on the corners of each one. And you have a, a panel light that is flush against the wall and doesn't take up any room uh, in the room. Or you could stick it to the ceiling too for an overhead backlight or something. But because it's very light, you don't have to have a bunch of stands to support it. You could hang it easily from a, you know, a suspended ceiling uh, without too much trouble. And, and it, it does come with something that looks like a wireless uh, receiver of some sort, so maybe that it has a wireless remote control that lets you communicate with it, or it has a uh, app that runs with it to control the color, temperature, and brightness wirelessly. 
Yeah, so this has been a good discussion about it. I mean, this is gaffers are a magical group of people when they really have a lot of experience in terms of taking an instrument and making it work for a variety of things that maybe those of us who just do interviews or something like that don't think about. So interesting product. Thanks for the question, Andy, and let's move to the next one. Next question. Bo Cordell from Charleston, South Carolina, asked, thinking it's about time for an NAS network attack storage attack storage from my home network, looking at Synology and would love it to run Docker for VPN, DNS, etc. What models should I be looking at? TJ Asher wants to weigh in on this. TJ? Yeah, um, generally you're going to be looking at the Plus series. And what I would recommend is going onto the Synology website. They have a really nice uh, wizard that will kind of guide you through potential models that you want to pick up. You choose if you're going to be a home or small office or a business or enterprise. And then from there, it kind of scales out. Do you want to run virtual machines on it? Then, okay, how many do you want to run? How much connectivity do you need to have? And we'll start guiding you to the models that Synology thinks are the best. As always, the most, um, the more memory and the most pro processor horsepower um, is the best. There you go. Let's move to the next question. From Scott Wasserman in Detroit, Michigan. I'm so appreciative of the team that makes everything with office hours happen on a daily basis. What's the status of the YouTube chapters? I've been missing it recently. Alex, can you help us out? Yeah, normally this would be a Sunday question, but we decided to go ahead and answer this one here. Um, yeah, we're we're just making some shifts on the back end, um, and sometimes you throw the ball to where the receiver's supposed to be, and they're not there yet. So so anyway, so we're we're almost done. I think that that should be updated today or tomorrow, and I think almost all the chapters will be back in, and then we'll have it um, working and you know fairly effectively. There's a bunch of changes that are happening. You'll see over the next six weeks as we reorder this. Um, one of the we're doing a lot of work on the back end to change the way we process all the video. And um, you'll start to see us do things like separate the first hour, second hour, have head and tail them, do a bunch of other things as we kind of get ready for the fall. So so there, there may be some glitches um, between now and the end of the year, but it's a really great team, huge team, <laughs> that is uh, that is making all of this work. And you'll probably see us do a lot more adjustments over the summer as we get ready for the fall. I just have to put a, a spike in the ground and say I've just been a gobsmacked at the amount of technical knowledge, the innovation, and just the pure effort that the volunteer team in the back end of After Hours always brings to this. It's astonishing to watch these highly skilled professionals and people who uh, are learning skills come together and make this happen. So, and, and, and I think it's really interesting is that we're really creating a different kind of content. So we're we're not there's not anything to base it on. <laughs> so, so you're constantly like, and now we will do this, you know, and there's not anyone, there's no real peers to look at. So we're, it's a, it's you a, saying it's, you as a pioneer have been taking a few arrows here and there. <laughs> there's a few arrows. That, that's why you don't have them right now. There's a few arrows that got stuck there. So yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the way when you're breaking new ground. Let's go to the next question. Fred Eric Eckert from Bad Erdenab, Germany. I'm looking for a display with a built-in horizontal flip for a teleprompter setup. Screen size is 24 inches. Recommendations. Alex, what do you know? It's really hard to find a cost-effective 24-inch that has a built-in flip. Um, so there are, I, I'm try, I was trying to think of, you know, prompter people sells sells their prompters, their 24-inch prompter will flip. And I, I just don't have one around to know wh what which one that is. It's, it's just a brand, but it's a very unknown brand that does that. 
most of the Lilliput monitors will do a flip. So Lilliput has, that's built in, that's been in their 10-inch monitors and 15-inch monitors and seven, you know, I'm going to guess it's in their big 23-inch uh, production monitors, but that'd be really expensive <laughs> to, to, to use as a teleprompter monitor. Um, in the past, mostly what we've done is, is used um, the uh, decimators. A decimator will flip it internally. And that's usually, I think the monitor that you find is 24 inches that will flip internally will cost more than the a cheap monitor that's 23 inches that has a decimator. <laughs> so you can use the decimator for other things. Mitchell Hill. Yeah, Alex just uh, hit it a little put, and I think the small HDs will do it also, but just check to make sure. Courtney Gooden? And most of them are in the smaller size. I don't know of anyone that makes a 24-inch. Uh, I've been using, uh, for prompter monitors, I've been using the 15-inch EOYOs. They have built-in horizontal flip, and they're pretty uh, inexpensive. They're, you know, 110 150 for uh, a 15 to a 15-inch, and most of them are 4 by 3 uh, so they're not really wide. Uh, if you're going to use them reflected into a beam splitter, you know, they should be more uh, 4 by 3 than 16 by 9 if you're going to keep your eye travel within the range of the camera lens. Uh, so you can look up EYOYO, you can find them around, they're a Chinese company. Uh, and they uh, all, most of them use the same uh, interface board, which is nice. It has composite video in, it has uh, VGA, HDMI, and uh, BNC for the composite ends, and uh, a variety of inputs and switchable. So they're good that, that way. And they're mostly IPS monitors. That advice coming to you from the man with a golden statue over his shoulder, an Emmy for teleprompting specifically. So let's go to the next question. From John Fisher, <clears throat> pardon me, in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, does using a micro or mini HDMI adapter on the end of a passive HDMI cable noticeably affect the cable's maximum length before signal attenuation? Alex. Our experience has been mostly that that, that, is, that attenuation happens with the thickness of the cable itself. So what, what's there? Uh, we've run um, the con a connector with a micro or mini, not a micro, but a mini. So the micro may, I don't know. But the mini, we've, we've run that 40 feet. Um, but they, they're really thick. HDMI cables, um, and so, um, but we haven't had a pro we haven't found that the connector is what attenuated it, but it's the quality of the cable in between. Mitch Hill, I've got a uh, a mini uh, hooked up to my Sony camera here, and it's about thirty feet long. I've had no problems with it. And Courtney, and they make a number of longer HDMI cables that have they're unidirectional because they have a really low power. Uh, amplifier on one end of them, and so you got to use them in one direction. And, and some of them also have are passive uh, HDMI, which have an, the problem with a longer cable is the impedance mismatch happens, <clears throat> and that causes signal loss. And uh, some of them have a uh, basically impedance matching network on one end. So at the far end, you'll have uh, this impedance matching network. So the plug on one end will be a little bit different than the plug on the other end. So you got to make sure you use it the right way. Uh, but um, I don't know if putting an adapter on the end is usually just a straight through adapter and doesn't do anything to affect the impedance or the amplification of the signal. I believe that takes us to our next question. And it's from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asked, the Melee fanless little brick computers run hot. What is a solution that will keep it cool and keep it quiet? Courtney Gooden's going to help us, Courtney. 
Well, what keeps it quiet is there's no fan in <laughs> So <laughs> to keep it cool, it is kind of a bit of a problem because these, as you can hear, you can use them as a little music instrument. Go. <laughs> but uh, yeah. it's ribbed. It's uh, the uh, case is designed with a, a carbon component plastic uh, that is heat conductive. And it has these little ridges on it to increase the surface area. So you don't want to cover up the ridges because that's the way it radiates heat. So when you're going to attach it to something, uh, it has the ribs on the front and the back. This one does. Uh, so you, you can't just stick some uh, sticky tape to it because it won't get a good grip on the adhesive ridges. Plus you're blocking the heat transfer. So it's designed to have convection. In other words, airflow has to go across. It has to be accessible. So mount it in somewhere where it's free air standing and you could design a little clip or something to hold it from the edges. So it doesn't impede the airflow on either side and it'll always be quiet. It's uh, and I haven't found them to thermal throttle. That was one of the things I test these things for. I put them on and uh, I've got one running now and it's, I could keep my coffee warm on it, which is great. But uh, unless you want to hold it in your hand while you're operating it, uh, it's not a problem. It's designed to radiate heat. And the reason it's hot is because it's getting that heat off of the chip and into the air. So don't worry about the fact that the case gets really hot. It's doing its job. So just don't impede the airflow to it. And it should run fine. I let them run free air, uh, running them full out with 18, you know, decoding 18 high def streams simultaneously for 24 hours at a time and they do not therm and they're running in turbo mode all four all four of the uh, processors in there are uh, uh, running full at full turbo speed which is 2.9 gigahertz and uh, they don't slow down and they don't throttle down and this is why I love office hours I didn't know when Courtney did that little thing with the back of it I thought what is that instrument called and in two seconds the internet told me it's a guiro so guiro yeah so it's Excellent. a mini guiro <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you can use it. As a, I, I have a highly uh, technical answer for you here. Is just don't touch it. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hot. Just just put a little little sticker above it that says "Do not touch. It will burn it burn you if you do." And then and then this just leave the, it there because the performance isn't 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 going down. Just don't put it. Don't put any paper up against it. You know those kinds of things. Just 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 keep it a little little spaced out. This is the type of creativity you learn on the set. And, and, and I have use a tool. I have, I have a couple of them as well. And uh, I just keep them in a place where I'm not going to rub up against them if they're really doing some work. Mitchell Hill, save us. Yeah, when, you, when you go out to eat, Alex, do you, uh, when they warn you not to touch the plate, do you just have to touch the plate just to make sure? Is that a problem? Uh, you know, I... I, I got I'm okay. We we have a moment because there's not a lot of questions in here. I'll just tell you one one I think about touching it is when my my uncle uh, uh, we were at a wedding and his daughter was at the time. I mean my cousin was probably two years old or three years old and she wanted to touch a hot pot on the on the um, stove and uh, he grabbed onto her hand as she reached up to touch it and he, and he said, "Don't touch the pot." And he just looked at her straight in the eyes and said, "Don't touch the pot. It will burn you if you do." She got upset and she ran off and he went and just got a glass of water, um, you know, with you know some ice water. And he's sitting there, you know, just working on that ice water really, really slowly. And she comes back 
And he looks over and you can see her. She's decided she wants to touch that pot. And he, he doesn't do anything. <laughs> he grabbed her once. And, uh, and she reaches up. And as soon as she touched this pot, it's like the most loud alarm system you've ever heard. I was screaming that she touched the pot. And he grabs onto her hand and shoves it in that water that he had waiting for her. And he looks at her and he goes, don't touch the pot. It will burn you if you do. <laughs> and, and, and she and, and, um, and, uh, and, and she ran off with the, with the, her hand in this in this ice water. He looked at me and he goes, He's ne- "She'll never touch that pot again." And she goes, "She'll know that I only I only warn her once." <laughs> so anyway, so those are the and so anyway, he was she she, she turned out well. <laughs> so anyway, very self sufficient tech expertise and parenting advice. We do it all here at exactly, office. Exactly. <laughs> whenever, when I was saying don't touch it, all I could think about, I had to say it because all I could think about was that pot of just don't touch the pot. All right. Yeah. And, and my Paul, my similar experience was. I, no, I can walk on the asphalt without my shoes in Phoenix in July. Yeah. <laughs> well, See, the producers, this is the message for the producers, is that if we look at it and we don't have a lot of questions. Advice. See, I don't want to tell the producers that because it might encourage them. Hey, let's just see what they say if we just don't, if we don't ask enough questions. <laughs> <laughs> by, by the way, this is a good time to remind you that you can ask the questions. Uh, so uh, if you have uh, more questions about technology or cooking, um, no, no, don't do the cooking. That's a Sunday conversation. But if you have que- if you have general questions, go ahead and throw those questions in right now. We take them all the way through the first hour. If you've got questions about framing for the second hour, go ahead and throw those in uh, and uh, and wrote a vote on the question so we know what order to answer them in. I'm tempted. Yeah, Court, we do have a little time. Courtney? Yeah, I was just going to warn Paul not to lick the fan when it's on. <laughs> office hours and the hierarchy of advice. Now we've got two up near the top, I think. Let's go to next question. And we have some hot questions here. This one's from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Any experience or thoughts on Streamlabs for Mac as an OBS alternative for a one-man show? Alex mentioned instability and noticeable latency with OBS on Mac. John Preto's going to start us off. John? Streamlabs is a fork of OBS, the same code underneath. They they painted a pretty face on it and made it easier and then added a bunch of features, but it's the same engine underneath. Alex? What John said. There Still you OBS. go. You haven't, you, you haven't escaped. You just went through another door and you ended up in the same room. <laughs> You're in the OBS. You're looking at a different wall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, I know we're a fan of the Melee mini PCs, but the Udo Bolt is a mini PC with an integrated Arduino Leonardo. Could Arduino have any use in production, or is it a hobby-centric platform? Courtney. Well, it is a hobby-centric platform because it, it's a means of you to write, you know, Python code uh, to do something specific that you need done that isn't done by anything else that's on the market. So that's what the application for a lot of these uh, Arduinos are. And I think I think there's even an Ar- Arduino interface for the Blackmagic that they wrote uh, some interface code uh, to interface it to their um, um, uh uh, API for the uh, Blackmagic switchers. And so so I think you can get that to an Arduino. Anything that you need to control some GPI pins, in other words, have some pinouts that you can send high or send low or to control relays to switch stuff on and off. A lot of Arduinos are used in, uh, you know, motion control or any type of automation where stuff has to repeat at a certain time in a certain order. Uh, it's good for doing stuff like that. Uh, special effects uses them a lot for triggering things that, you know, lights that have to come on or explosions that have to go off at a certain time. 
uh, with precise uh, measurements of time in between. So it is quite useful, uh, but it's mostly do-it-yourselfers. I don't know if there's any solutions for the Arduino that come right out of the box. And a lot of those many PC combination Arduino, I don't know if you can use the Arduino at the same time as the many PCs. You have to boot it up in either or. So I'm not sure if, if that one. I haven't looked at the Udu to see if uh, you can use both simultaneously. Alex. Yeah, the Arduino, uh, I know a lot of people actually, that we, we've used them in production. Other people have used them in production. In fact, the early... Um, uh, you know, a lot of the early switcher controls that we've all used um, have were all based on Arduino. One of the advantages of Arduino is, is that it, it's up very fast. There's no boot time. Um, and it also has a very fast response. So it's its response is a little bit faster than like a Raspberry Pi. Um, and so for low level, I just have to get this thing done. It works exceptionally well. We've used it for things like very specialty things where I need one thing to be done and it has to be done perfectly. And I just, and, and oftentimes it's integrating with a switcher. Um, so, um, so I think that those are the, you know, I, I think that Arduinos are great. We've talked about doing more with Arduinos in the, in, in the labs and we may still go back to that in the, in the future. Oh, darn, I was going to grab that question because TJ, it would have made a great test question for the, uh, reader, uh, <laughs> Conflex, the uh, integrated Arduino Leonardo is not yeah, exactly. the easiest thing to say. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado has this question. Filming with a QCAM Ego left and right images are produced. I'm trying to use a gimbal so the full resolution may be recorded. Boy, and that's spelled Q-O-O-C-A-M. I would have never found that on the web. Alex. Yeah, so it's a great little camera. I mean, I I haven't found I have one too, but I haven't really found a lot of uses for it. I I collect little left right cameras because I'm I'm always trying to find just the right one to to make that to make it work. And this one might be an update to the one that I have. Um, and so uh, I mean, now I'm tempted. Um, anyway, um, it is uh, you know, excuse me. Um, it is a. Uh, um, what you probably want to do is look at an RS2 or an RS3. So you should be able to lock this into a DJI, um, you know, RS gimbal system. Um, and that will um, definitely stabilize it. It's probably, it's more expensive than the camera. Um, I don't know of a lot of them. The problem is the ones that are at the price of the camera or less are typically going to not handle that much weight. So they won't, they're, they're really designed for GoPros or small action cameras. And so the ones that are in that $300 or less, um, I think you're going to find can't manage the weight uh, well, so you might end up spending more money on the gimbal than you do on the than you did on the camera. I would love to see some of the footage that you shoot with that camera, though, because it's um, it uh, it looks pretty thick. It it is important to do what you're doing, which is to stabilize it, because when it moves a lot, assuming you're looking at it in 3D, if you're putting goggles on or something like that to to view it, um, you makes you sick. <laughs> so so it is uh, stabilizing. It does make a difference. Um, but I I would also say that for most 3D you're better off um, keeping the camera still and allowing the, the, the viewer to look at it and move, you know, allow, allow things to happen in front of it. So really think about with um, stereo footage, as much as you can, you're moving very, very slowly or you're keeping it still because as you move it, typic the typical viewing for stereo is something on goggles. And if you do that and you start moving, when your eyes are viewing something that your inner ear isn't feeling, your body um, immediately thinks that there's only for a million years, 
when your eye saw something different than your inner ear felt, it meant you were poisoned <laughs> and you had to eject everything that you just ate. So, um, so uh, this new thing that we've done in the last hundred years of putting things on our eyes that simulate that um, becomes problematic. So you want to be you, you moving the camera a lot, definitely shaky camera, but even moving the camera a little bit can make people ill. Courtney. Yeah, I wondered uh, this. I was looking at it at its uh, shape. It's a you know stereo camera with a viewfinder on the back, and I was wondering if the viewfinder has a lenticular screen. That would be interesting, so that you could see kind of a three D representation on the screen if you get the viewfinder screen. I think it does. I actually, it does. I think it does, it does yeah, have I a lenticular has, screen. Yeah, I know that with the um, the hydrogen that I have, um, you know, the Android hydrogen that, that Red put out for a while, that's exactly what they did is they put that reticular and that, that screen on the back in it. Lenticular stereo. Yeah, lenticular. Yep. Interesting. Uh, next question. Here's Chris Sabato from Albany, Oregon, asking, I'm using a Hitachi Fiberback and CCU, and I'd like to convert single-mode fiber to multi-mode and back to take advantage of, of and an in-place multi-mode cable. I'm not having any luck finding converters that are not network-specific. Alex, can you help him out? Yeah. Um, all I'll say is that we've never... I get it. You're, you have multi-mode that's in place already. So you're trying to... Um, I don't know of a lot of converters. We... When we do cameras, we'll we'll never touch multimode, you know, with with our camera backhauls. Like I, I'd rather run it separately than than use a multimode in a system. It's not for what we do. It's not stable <laughs> for very long. Um, it's really the multimode is great for if you're doing networking, which is what probably why you have it in the building there. Um, single mode is very hard to do that way, but you are trying to send something from one place to another very stably and over a long distance. Uh, I would not put multi-mode into my system, um, you know, like to, to make that work unless I was going to convert it to an IP signal and send it over as as IP. So I wouldn't try to use it as a, a true um, multi-mode multi -mode signal. I would rather say, I'm going to turn this into whatever packet delivery I want and then send it, send it over that network as a network signal. But I wouldn't do it as a, as a video signal. Hmm. Would you recommend to somebody if they're building out a facility to run both single mode and multi mode parallel to each other? No, I only so run they, single okay. mode. I won't. I won't have any part of multi mode. I, I, okay. I know that network people like multi mode, but I will. I when people ask me, "Hey, I'm building something," I usually recommend uh, twelve strands of fiber to every room minimum, and then go up from there. Depending on how, if you think it's going to actually be a studio, send more. Um, you know, build a switch system that you can, or a routing or some kind of patching system that you can patch those together. But I would, if I built any building, I would put at least 12 strands of fiber um, into it. And, and I would also build um, most likely something like a, either, and somewhere between an inch and a half and a three inch conduit to every room so that every room has a way for me to get stuff in and out of it. And, it, and I can, so I can upgrade later, but 12 strands of fiber will take, will last you a long time. And in that case, for a network device, you're using two of those strands instead of the multi-mode. <laughs> so, so, you know, so that's, that's all your, you just got to get there and back. So, um, but I wouldn't, uh, I, I would always, always, always run single mode. TJ Asher. Oh, I'm sorry. Next question. That's from TJ Asher. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, from Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, considering getting a Sony cinema camera, looking at the differences between the FX30 Super 35 and the FX3 full frame, is it worth the extra $2,000 for the full frame? 
And I'm bouncing this right back to Mitch Hill, who's going to answer the question, Mitch. I have an FX3 right here. You're looking at it. And if you look over at Alex, uh, you'll see he's using an FX30. I think they're darn close uh, in terms of the quality of the uh, image. I would take the money you save by buying an FX30 and buy a really nice lens for it. And I think that would be your best bet. Alex? Yeah, what, what uh, f-stop are you at, Mitchell? Do you know? Oh, gosh, I think it's two. Right, yeah. So, sense? like, the, the one thing is is that what you need is a faster lens. So the, I think one of the big advantages of the full-frame sensor is that you can get a zoom lens. So I'm, my, my room would be much sharper if I put a zoom lens on this. So, um, so I chose to go with a prime. This is a 35 millimeter 1.4 because you can't get 1.4 in a prime. So it's a 2.8 prime. Um, you know, two, I'm sorry, 2.8 is about the, the widest you can get for a zoom. So to get the bokeh that I have, if I, you know, I'm really thinking about either going less expensive and get and testing like the sixty, the Sony sixty four hundred, which is about eight hundred eight hundred dollars, or more expensive and getting an FX three for my house and the FX thirty or or travel or whatever, I might keep this one for my house because it works well. Um, but the but I think that the I guess my leaning is um, I would if I if I did it again I'd be tempted to get the FX three. Um, uh, get a full frame sensor um, specifically. Is and the FX3 is full frame. Um, for some reason, I thought yes, it was FX6. yes, most definitely. And it's funny you should say that because I'm thinking that if I were to do it all over again, I'd get an FX30 and save the money. Yeah, yeah but the problem is, is that all the that means that you can now use uh, zoom lenses at 2.8, and they have the same. They'll have a very similar bokeh to what I have right now with a 1.4, um, and so you have a, you have a wider range of lenses that you could use. So I I probably would if I did it again, I'd probably go to a full frame sensor. But I'm still thinking of it. And, and where that also comes, if I have a fast for, for lens like this, where it really becomes nice is where you're traveling. This makes a big difference because I open it all up and it's very forgiving of whatever hotel room I'm in, whatever, you know, person, wherever I'm staying, everything gets soft. I would like to make it even softer so it just kind of blurs out um, from there. And I know that there are tools that will do this, but I I, I never think that they look normal. Like I think Apple's is probably, Apple's webcam uh, softener is probably the closest to something that looks normal. The problem with the problem with most of the auto blurring or the software blurring is it's really designed more as a way to obscure anything that's it's like a privacy screen, and so the blur is way too high and it looks unnatural. Um, it doesn't fade fade correctly, and the problem is is the person too much of the person. So when that bokeh is too um, when the when the when the bokeh is really blurred but the whole person is in focus people won't notice it but they will feel it like they will feel that something's wrong because we naturally understand that if everything was that blurry then my eyes would be in focus and everything else would be out of focus on my face people don't know that but they would still feel it like they, they feel that something's off and they can't they, they won't be able to put their and that creates cognitive load courtney uh, yeah, uh, TJ, if you want to step into the Sony cinema camera realm of full frame and you have an available second mortgage on your home, I'd suggest going to the Venice 2 8K camera. <laughs> There's one on eBay for $79,000 with the uh, proper Airy Alexa mount kits. So click those buy of you it who now. prefer duck hunting with a howitzer, this you know, is your solution. <laughs> my, my, that was my, the, the price of my Sony F950 was. $82,000. So it's, you know, and used, it was used. So the same thing, the price never changes for a used high-end Sony camera. It just, it just gets better. So 
Mitchell, save us. Well, I don't know about saving you all, but uh, the size of a uh, uh, a full frame uh, sensor uh, gives you a little bit more range on the lenses that you put on there. It's like when I set this up, uh, my DB buddy uh, came in, and I'm using his Zoom, uh, and I was very happy with the way that, the way everything came out. He said, "Now look at this," and he reached into his uh, case and he had a whole full set of Cooks uh, primes, and he pulled that out, and just something happened. When he put the cooks on there, uh, it was just amazing. And I think having a full frame lens gave you a lot, or excuse me, sensor uh, gave you a lot more latitude in terms of the lenses you could use. So the question, TJ, is what do you want to use it for? Do you want to shoot films? Do you want to use it as a zoom camera, as a zoom or a webcam? Both of the choices are probably expensive. Uh, Alex. Yeah, and and uh, as a purely zoom camera with a, a space as large, if I if I went to Super Thirty Five, the one that I want to test is the sixty four hundred because um, I don't know if the, if the given the way I use it as a webcam, I'm not sure that the FX thirty buys me anything. So the direction that I'm going right now is probably to stick with my thirty my Super Thirty Five, but make the my in house version of it even. Uh, less expensive, eight hundred dollars or whatever, and then and put a good lens on it, and then have the FX thirty that I take on the on the road, and then someday get an FX three or FX six. Um, I think that uh, I think that what I you know if I really wanted to go all the way, as we were talking about the Venice and everything else, I'd, I'd look at an Airy LF with um, you know with some uh, uh, some of the the K thirty five lenses. And then you know K thirty five is really sensitive to light. And it would all look, I would just look like I was in a J.J. Abrams movie all the time. And if you're headed for the uh, uh, cinema mode, and, the, and again, the FX3 and the FX30 sit at the bottom of the Sony cinema line, um, you could cut an FX3 uh, against a FX6 or even an FX9. I don't think you'd quite get away with a Venice, but um, you have some latitude there because of the uh, the way the optics work. And the thing that's neat about the FX series from Sony is they're very, very video centric. In other words, they're made for shooting video. They have a case that has a fan in it, which it could be an issue if you're leaving it on for a long time. If you have some of the smaller Sony cameras, they might overheat, particularly if you're recording at the same time you're shooting. John Preto. Mitch, isn't it true, though, you get the XLR adapter for on the FX3 and you don't on the FX30? Yeah, they in order to keep the price down, uh, the uh, the device that plugs into the top uh, adapter on the uh, FX3 comes with it, and what it does is it bypasses the uh, analog input on the uh, the FX3 cameras. So they're understandably a little noisy, but if I go st directly into the handle that you're talking about, um, I'm going right into it digitally. And as you can hear, it sounds pretty good because that's how I get my audio into my system. And that's $600 just for that device by itself retail. If you bought it separately, yes. We're moving on. Next question. Next question from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Any apps anyone has tried that take advantage of the USB webcam support on ISO iOS 17? I, I was interested when it came out. I have not had a circumstance to use it. Alex, have you? I, I haven't. I'm, I'm just updating. I'm finally updating everything um, to the public beta on my iPad. So um, I, I hope to test it in the next couple of days. 
Um, the uh, we know other people have tested putting their ATEM into it, and it's worked. So that's the report back is the ATEM works inside the iPad, um, and so so that's what I'm hoping to test specifically is um, an ATEM as a camera source. Nice. The elves in Apple are working hard. Next question. From David Brady in New York, New York, and 11 floors above Times Square. David asked, menu bar management, a 14-inch MacBook uh, MBA, MBA is my daily Air. carry. MacBook. It's a MacBook Air. Air. Okay, got it. Thank you. Uh, what is the black surround at the uh, at the camera, around the camera? It consumes some precious menu bar real estate. How can you change the load order or access items that might not fit on that screen? Alex. Yeah, I think that this is where the air is is showing up. It's going past the camera, kind of like what we have with the iPhone, I believe. Um, so those are, the, you know, that's the the area that they need to make that work. I actually don't have, I think that in the startup um, menu, in, you can set your load in um and I think that that will affect the order of what you see there. So basically in your, I think it's in your users, um, and I'm not 100% sure of this, but I believe in your user settings, um, and I'd have to restart my computer to test it. So, <laughs> so we probably not won't do, do it now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I believe that you can, um, that it will, uh, you can set what order that those startups are loading, and, and that should affect what's going across the top. Interesting. I've never tried that. Courtney, thoughts? Is that the, uh, they call the pill area that surrounds it? I believe it so. They, I think that's what he's talking about. They make into the menu. And I think originally there, there has to be a little black uh, margin around the lens opening to avoid the uh, LEDs that are in the screen from reflect, refracting and reflecting off the surface glass back into the lens. So they, it's kind of a little safe area around the lens. And they tried to hide it more with by putting a, a digital black area in the LCD around it, uh, calling it the pill. Interesting. Next question. From Matt Halverson in Brookings, South Dakota. What is the hourly rate to rent a small production studio space in your area of the country? One studio engineer included in the rate. We're trying to figure out how our rate compares. Thank you. Alex, what have you run into? Oh, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> so so it, it, it so depends on how big is the studio? How much gear are you including with the studio? Is anything included in it? So um, in one that we use the most often with an engineer is probably about $2,600 a day, but that's 60 by 60 by 30, you know, without any real, without any grip gear. Um, so, so, or, or any lights. So that's literally just the, the raw space um, with, with someone to manage it. Um, the, um, but you can, uh, yeah, I think when we rent, we did rent our space out, a smaller space, and we charged about $800 a day. And it came with a fair bit of gear and someone that could answer your questions. They didn't run the space. Like we didn't sit there and just stare at you. Um, but we had someone that was, that was there. And so ours was a little less expensive. Um, and so it just depends on how big, and our, but ours was a quarter of the size of, of that space um, and not nearly as, as high or anything else. So, so I think that um, it really depends on what you're doing. I think what you want to do is start doing the math of what are you paying for it? What What is all of that cost um, to put it in? I would go the other direction. Um, you know, what's your rent, electricity, servicing, you know, margin, all those things that you want to get. And I would, I would look less at the rate around you and more at like, what does it take for this thing to actually make money? Um, and then, and then try to figure out that's the first step for you to know. You need to know what it takes to actually make money at it. Um, and then, and then you can kind of move from there. Courtney. 
Well, right now is a good time to rent stages because there's not a lot of production going on, at least in uh, Hollywood and New York. Where you are in uh, South Dakota, maybe won't be affected as much. Uh, but as Alex says, it depends. There are several small stage packages. And, and in L.A., is the only thing I can gauge by. Uh, they come with a variety, you know, a variety of sizes and a variety of equipment. Some of them have lighting packages included. Some of them include electricity. And some of them have, you know, dining areas and makeup areas. It depends on how extensive a little stage area you're looking at. Um, and, you know, they can go for anywhere from $800 a day up to $8,000 a day, depending upon the package uh, that you want to get. And a lot of times they will make the lighting equipment av available to you and you use it on a piecemeal basis. So what you use, you get charged for, it goes on your bill. And, uh, and that kind of depends also. There are some that have uh, built-in coves and greens are painted green. If you want to paint it, it costs more money because they have to repaint it back to its white color or green color or whatever the color of the cyclorama is. If you want hanging curtains, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of ups and extras, so there's no one answer. But check around in your neighborhood. Uh, there may be some available uh, at a reasonable cost right now because production, uh, at least, uh, you know, film and television production is kind of at a standstill right now because of the strikes. Mitch Hill. Yeah, adding to the it depends uh, category, uh, you're nowhere near Hollywood or major production center. Um, I'm in the similar situation being in Wilmington, Delaware, and I would say that the maximum that you could possibly get for a studio, even a basic studio of, let's just generalize, of any size, is $1,000. I think that's the magic number. Keep it under 1000 and you're doing well. And all the upsells, like having a grip truck and lighting available and sound and all the other stuff, uh, painting, uh, cyclorama, all those things can be taken into account. But I think the magic number uh, in a smaller market uh, outside of Hollywood would be under $1,000. All right, you've gotten some good advice there. Next question. From Khalid Amujaya from Hassa, Saudi Arabia, for Zoom meetings similar to office hours, what prime lens would you recommend for a full-frame camera? Alex. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> um, to get about the same uh, framing that I have, so I am about, um, uh, let's see here, I am about four feet from my camera, uh, you know, straight out. So my camera's about four feet from me, maybe three and a half, four feet. Um, and uh, I have a 35 on a Super 35. So that's about the same as a 50, roughly a 50 on a full frame. So if you're about that distance, three, three and a half, four feet or a meter from your, from your camera, uh, then you would be in the, you probably want to get a 50 to get the framing that I have now. Um, so, and a 50 is gonna be less expensive than 35 because more common. Um, and so, uh, so I would, I would look at that and then really look for speed. So you're looking for a 1.2, 1.4 at, at most 1.8 um, f-stop. So, um, for, you know, for a prime, you know, so, so you want, you want a really fast prime to make that work. Um, most primes are going to be in that area. And again, fifties tend to be really inexpensive, inexpensive because they're very common. Um, but either a 50 or a 35 is probably what you're looking for. Mitch Hill. I agree 100%. I, I have essentially a 50. I do have a zoom, but that's where it sat in order to get the distance between the, uh, the camera and, uh, where I'm sitting. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind, if you don't get a zoom uh, and we do something like change the size of our heads, 
uh, in the screen or the background, um, that's going to mess you up pretty good. So um, I, I say go with a Zoom that has the ability to cover those particular areas. Yeah, and test, test, test. That you know, the camera set back from your face distance does matter a lot. I think I'm on a uh, 22 millimeter setting on an 1835 uh, f 1.4 lens, and it gives me this. Uh, if I put a 35 or a 50 on this, I would have to be adjusting the distance to get the same head size, and it might might run out of room, uh, run out of runway behind the camera, particularly if you're in a standard home office kind of circumstance and you have to be close to a wall. So TJ. But just to give a price comparison on these 50 millimeter lenses, a 1.8 50 millimeter will run you about $200. A 1.4 50 millimeter lens will run you about $400. And if you want to jump up to something like an F1.2, that's an extra $1,000. It's going to be 1400 at the minimum. Yeah, and the build quality of those lenses are very different. Somebody who's looking for a really fast lens at f1.2 is pretty serious about what they're doing. And those lenses are built for the professional uh, photographer slash videographer. They're, they're no small construction process in there. They're often more resistant to water and humidity and everything. And they're built to a much more precision scale. So let's go to, oh, Mitch wanted to get in. Mitch? Oh, just to, for comparison, uh, we were talking earlier about... Uh, uh, cameras, the FX3 and the FX30. Um, as I said, my friend, uh, uh, after we got this uh, $1,500 Sony lens, the GM lens on, um, he put some Cook lenses on a uh, set of Cooks, just for comparison's sake. It's about a quarter million dollars. Yeah, that, that's some pretty decent glass. Let's go to the next question. Alexander Knight from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Now that AI and large language models are being incorporated into DaVinci Resolve, what else will we like to see implemented? For me, a way to keyword search for the entire media for words said would allow for quick edits. Courtney? Uh, yeah, I'd like to see maybe AI applied to dialogue editing because there's something that requires a lot of finesse and a skilled dialogue editor, you know, because they do little tricks like, you know, if you're doing an over-the-shoulder, you have to bring in the dialogue of the facing away from the camera person from their close-up to overlap the cut uh, before we cut to them. Uh, so little things like that, decisions like that, and, uh, for example, matching camera perspective. So when it cuts to a wider shot, you bring in more of the boom microphone to match the camera perspective. It could uh, AI could make those kind of decisions and create a uh, AI-assisted dialogue edit uh, of your film uh, if it just paid attention to the size of the shot and the uh, channels that were available to it uh, from the ISO tracks recorded by the sound mixer on the set. If each person has a lavalier and there's a boom, it could decide and mix between the, uh, the lav and the boom to match the camera perspective and pull up things across cuts so that you don't hear cuts on the picture cut. You don't hear the dialogue cut at the same time to hide the mask, those little tricks. And interestingly enough, Apple did this with Final Cut Pro in the early days when a first uh, Final Cut Pro 10, um, they actually have an AI built into it that identifies singles, two shots, 
group shots and things like that and uses that to apply tags that you can use should you want to. Now, I don't think a ton of editors uh, understand that that capability is there and, and just may not be interested in using it, but it, it has been in development for four years to try to do those kind of things. It isn't perfect, but it's there and they've been playing with it. Alex? Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of things that an assistant editor would do that you could probably have this this AI do relatively soon. I think that's the real danger for assistant editors is that I can throw you a bunch of footage. I can tell you to, uh, you know, it, it could theoretically uh, organize a lot of that. If I give you the script and I give you the, the footage that I have, you know, eventually AI, you're going to be able to just dump it in and it's going to build you an assembly. Like, here's the assembly of what you just did there. We do that a lot where clients will highlight things that they want and don't want. And if you look at what um, some of these AI things are doing right now, as you could say, get the best take from each one of these, you know, and put it in there or stack the takes up on top of each other and just build that whole assembly with all the takes, you know, broken up into each their own little clips um, building that assembly out. And so a lot of that stuff could be done relatively quickly. That doesn't mean that the editor doesn't have something to do. They just have a lot less to do. So they go in and, and now spend that time really, sp you know, working on what makes them different. You know, what makes a great editor is that all the little things that they do, and it's not the assembly, you know. So um, something, a machine being able to assemble everything, again, on a large project, it puts at risk, the assistant editors um, on a smaller project when you're just working with a client, um, what it means is that very quickly you can throw a bunch of footage in there and very quickly get something back that is an assembly. And then you can sit there and spend the time you would have spent stacking all that stuff up and putting it all together, um, doing something more, you know, doing working more on the creative. I think that's what's possible. So we could end up with a lot of better things. I think also we are going to get to a lot of the things that we didn't do before because it was too expensive. We'll get it done, you know, coverage of, of smaller events and everything else because it doesn't cost anything to, to do it. Yeah, one of the wow moments in watching editing, um, uh, Thomas Grove Carter, a fellow I met early in the Final Cut world, uh, shot and edited Ed Sheeran's music video for Castle on the Hill using this process. And there's a function in Final Cut Pro called Auditions that allows you to stack multiple takes of a single setup or shot, no matter how long they are. The interesting thing about it is you can literally watch and say, no, I want to see what the other options are for this shot. And you can just rifle through them and your timeline expands or contracts based on how long that particular take of that shot is. Watching him say, I just want to see the different alternatives for this shot in context and play it on a loop and see which one feels better to me was like an, a wow kind of thing. Those are the kinds of capabilities I think that AI is going to make more and more easy to accomplish for all the editors as time goes by. Let's move on to the next question. Robin Cutshaw from Atlanta, Georgia asking, the Sony A6700 seems to be the new darling. Anyone have one or tested one? Alex Lindsay. Definitely interested. I mean, that's the I meant to say 6700, not 6400 earlier. Um, that that's the one that I'm looking at testing for my home office. Uh, it, it looks like it'll do a lot of what I'm doing with the FX30 right now. Mitch Hill. If I were to test it and I don't have one, I would be concerned about using it as a webcam and a heat buildup because I don't believe it has a fan at our it, FX series do. It, 
It's been tested uh, by a lot of folks, and they said that, I mean, there's there's some tests that are online right now, and, and what the response has been is that in your studio, it'll be fine. In bright open sun, maybe not the right solution. Uh, so outside, it, 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 fell, it fell apart at about 30 minutes in. Um, you know, so it was hot outside in the sun. It was problematic. Um, the uh, But in a studio environment, or in a standard studio environment, it worked fine. Okay. And, and Aura A700 also has problems with heat, so... I would test it before you bought it. Next question. Next question from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Courtney, follow-up question. So adding a heat sink in your view would be extraneous. And do you replace the power supply connections with power pole like in this video? And there's a link to it. I have, um, oh, sorry. Uh, we be called up. <laughs> Courtney, go ahead. All right. Um, I will. Uh, I haven't looked at this uh, power pole. Uh, take a look. The, the, um, oh, I see. So it's uh, like a stick that you made. Uh, it's an external heat sink about. that you have to like solder in or something? Didn't find the right one. It looks, oh, no, I didn't find the right one. I'm not sure sure where that link leads to but um uh if you like i said before if you put it freestanding in the air the uh radiant surface of it can do okay you could put a small silent fan on it to to speed up the air across the surface of it that would be good uh but as long as you mount it some mount it where air can get to both sides of it uh you know it it runs fine uh, in normal. Now I haven't tried it outdoors in you know Texas you know 112 degree heat, you know because uh, in order for convection to work, the air temperature surrounding it has to be cooler than the air temperature inside of it. So uh, if it's really hot outside, convection doesn't work very well, and even putting a fan on it is not going to help. You may have to mechanically cool it. You know one trick that I used to have with my uh, PD4 our PD2 uh, DAT machine, which suffered from heat problems. And we'd have to shoot out in the desert somewhere where it's in sunlight. Uh, I would take a bag of ice in a Ziploc bag, put ice in a, this is a large gallon Ziploc bag, wrap it in duvetine to absorb any sweat that would accumulate across condensation that would accumulate on, and then set the uh, PD2 right on top of it uh, to absorb heat and then to replace the ice, which turns to cold water after a while. Uh, every couple of hours, and uh, that worked fine. So you can do something like that if you're in an extreme heat situation. You need to conduct heat away from it. Uh, a little ziplock full of ice and uh, some uh, cloth around it to absorb any condensation would work great for you. Let's try to do one more quick one. Next question. Ron Lacoman from Waterloo, Canada, asked, I work for a consulting firm where we produced video content in-house. Our editors are scattered across North America, and we currently have... 21 terabytes stored on NAS offline, and it's growing. What is the best workflow solution to access our entire library remotely? Alex. One thing that we've done in production has been uh, use LucidLink. And I think LucidLink with a computer could be a great way for you to tie everything together. Um, and um, so I think that uh, that would be the, the place that I would probably start. So take a look at LucidLink. Another one, if you're all on something like Resolve, you could think about things like the, the Blackmagic Cloud. Um, but those would be the first two that I would probably consider um, as a way to have everyone kind of really work on all those files at the same time. All right. Um, in just a couple of minutes here, we're going to be going to uh, our second hour discussion.
A couple of things just to note between then and there. Don't forget that your votes do matter. And so um, it's important that you come in here, uh, take a look through the questions. And one of the things I've noticed is, is it, it happened today that um, at the tail end, after we've been discussing things for a long time, we might get a, con- a comment like Paul's just a few minutes ago, and it really deserves a little more time to research it. So if you can come in early, even the night before, and spend some time paying attention to the topics for the next day, and we can give you much better answers for that kind of thing. So it's just important to do that. I was going to take a look at what's coming up tomorrow on the show, but I didn't have that in front of me. Alex, do you remember what the what the topic is for tomorrow? Yeah, we've got boomerang boomerang coming tomorrow. <laughs> so they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna uh, be here and then they're gonna go and they're gonna come back. Uh, so boomer, boomerang carnets. Uh, they're they're the oh that's right carnets. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the the real exciting thing about boomerang is I've used them for years. Uh, this is how, carnets are how you get lots of gear in and out of a country. And um, it is it is one of those things that is very confusing when you first do it. And then very simple, especially when you're working with a company like uh, Boomerang. So I felt like, let's just bring the experts in and have them answer questions about carnets, um, rather than me trying to explain carnets. And they are the experts. And so these are the, the world experts in the for the United States of getting your hardware in and out. So they're gonna be able to answer a lot of your questions about what it takes to get hardware in and out of the country. And boy, if you don't have a carnet, you don't have them in case, you're gonna be all sorts of problems when you're coming back in because people will think you bought that overseas and they'll be looking at hitting you with tariffs and all sorts of weird things. This kind of works around that process so it smooths everything out and makes it a whole lot easier to travel internationally with expensive equipment. So talk about that tomorrow, but... It is the top of the hour, and that means it's time to turn our attention to our second hour process. Today, we're going to be talking about um, framing. And framing is a topic that ever since the beginning of uh, visual arts, whether it's videography, photography, doesn't matter. You know, you're going to point your camera at something and you as the camera operator or the movie maker are going to decide how do you want to frame something. A whole language has been developed around the idea of framing, how you communicate to your audience, what kind of shots look good, what don't. There's uh, issues like negative space and a whole lot of things that we're going to be talking about over the course of this. It's a big topic and the people who do this well, people who understand how to frame a single, a two-shot, a group shot, highly prized. It is extremely valuable skills when somebody is really good at it. And I put together just a couple of slides to just kind of you know, generate the initial conversation about this. Um, this was my definition. I was trying to figure out, oops, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing, is it? Oh, yes, it is. Sorry about that. I just have something else in front of my screen. Um, this was my quick, if I was going to describe what framing is, it is about composing an arrangement of elements within a frame. And I specifically didn't say people, I didn't say uh, uh, landscapes or whatever. It is any element you're putting in your frame. And I was thinking, why do you do that? Well, you do it because you want to enhance the audience's engagement. You want them to look at this frame and say, this is something I want to look at. And it is communicating for the best people who do this some aspect of the scene that is important. Here's some of the terminology that we're going to be using today. Just some of the things that somebody who is concerned with their framing think about. Uh, We've talked about rule of thirds. We've talked about these things like singles and two shots or establishing shots. Um, And 
and that kind of makes sense in the real world. But some of this is also uh, just industry jargon. A cowboy, what is that? Well, it's a particular kind of shot that you've seen over and over again. You probably didn't realize it was happening. But this is the language of the industry. I pulled some examples visually because we're talking about visual things. And I got them from two websites that I've used for a little bit of time. Studio Binder has a lot of really good content. And so if you're learning about shots, this is a good thing. Shot Kit also is a good one. Uh, very quickly, we're just going to do a couple of shots here to kind of orient. When we're talking about the size of a shot, this was a pretty nice one that Studio Binder put together. They're talking about when we're talking about what is a medium close-up or a medium shot, what is it that you're trying to get visually accomplished? And these are traditional framing ideas. And so when you say, I want a close-up, it, it, having this kind of generic idea means that five people won't give you five wildly different interpretations of what a close-up is. And if you meant actually an extreme close-up when you said close-up, you're not going to get what you're looking for. So here's some examples. Just real quick, we're going to pause through here. So here's a single. So one character dominates the frame. Now, I mentioned earlier that the language evolves, and this is what is called a dirty single. It's still focusing on one character, but it's also using the idea of an over-the-shoulder, which is another kind of shot we'll get. But... The reason they call it a dirty single is that the diehard character here, or uh, the actor, is basically all that matters in that shot. Here's a two-shot or a, um, a double, sometimes it's called, but it, it focuses on two characters and gives them kind of equal weight in a frame. Three-shot, obviously, is the same thing for three people. And you'll notice that even how the cinematographer arranges the people, you know, Ron on the right side of this frame is a little more dominant than either Harry or Hermione in the shot, which means that we're probably paying more attention to him. And and one thing you also want to notice about that last frame, if you go back to oh, that Let me go back, there, sure. Um, is that uh, if you... This is the subtle stuff that I think a lot of times, especially when we're doing camera ops, you know, we, we need people to be to be focused on is um, I'm going to cut to leave yours up, Bill, and I'm going to cut to yours, but I'm going to take over a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, so uh, if we look at this here, one thing you want to um, uh, look at um, is the fact that there is still what we call uh, nose room. Let me turn this back on. Hold on. There's nose room here. So even though the three of them are taking up this, this frame here, we're leaving a little bit of space here. And that means that that, that gives you focus. That gives the, the, the focus that direction. If we move them all, if we took this frame and we move them all over so that, that Ron was here and, and we moved it over here and we left space back here, the viewer will expect something to come in and get them. <laughs> so the viewer is waiting for something to happen because there's more space behind them. So a lot of times we um, we ask when we're doing stuff, oh, I need a little bit more nose room. So this is a frame, exactly what Bill said, of a three shot. But we also want to pay attention to that framing of where do we leave empty space? Because the viewer feels that empty space all the time. Um, if you go back, Bill, one, maybe one, one shot here. Um, so here you can see there's a, see how there's his is right there. There's a still a little bit of empty space here. Also notice in that center frame that they're not putting anybody there. They're filling those, they're grabbing those, um, you know, those two thirds. So, so anyway, just you want to, the, the, one of the big, biggest things about it, not only what's in the frame, um, but also you want to pay attention to 
where your where your negative space is, um, just like white space and so on and so forth. Um, you know that negative space is is really important. Another thing that's used all the time in uh, cinematic language is the OTS or over-the-shoulder shot. This happens constantly during dialogue scenes, and it really puts you in the conversation with the actors. On the left side of this frame, kind of what Alex is pointing out, there's a little negative space over there. That's the back of the chair for the second character, and that gives you the sense of eavesdropping on this shot. And there's actually uh, interesting, I'd never heard the term used, but they call it an over-the-hip shot, and it does the same kind of thing. You're seeing the secondary character in this, but they've lowered the camera, and instead of the over-the-shoulder, which keeps you as an equal part of that, this over-the-hip shot kind of is more intimate, and even Tom Cruise's acting in this shot gives you the sense that there's a looming character kind of putting him in a, trying to put him in a subsidiary uh, position in terms of his character, and even his acting is kind of saying, I won't have this. So you can see how much this visual language is really important. Here's the POV or point of view shot used all the time to give you a sense of you are now the character that is talking in the shot or, or is being examined by everybody else. Um, I, I mentioned before the cowboy shot, and it's kind of a special thing, but I found this great frame that talks about the cowboy shot. It doesn't have to be a single, although often it was that kind of Clint Eastwood shot in the middle. It's shot from mid-thigh up, and it's really a, a dominant look at the hero in the shot. Doesn't necessarily have to be one person as indicated by the two shots on the right, but it is saying that these are the people who are going to save the day. Um, I'm going to pop out of this right now. I've got some really nice examples um, of use of negative space and other things coming up, but I wanted to get to questions pretty quickly or um, let's see, Courtney had some thoughts about this, so let's involve him in the discussion here early. Courtney? Well, I was just going to to add to some of your discussion on, on framing as to the dynamics of the framing and how that can uh, bring a feeling to the shot uh, or emotion to the shot. In other words, uh, some people like the twitchy feel of, uh, I hated the, uh, it took me right out of succession, the fourth season, no spoilers, um, because the camera work would do these strange reframes and smash zoom in and zoom back out again for no reason, uh, which works against the drama. It gives you that uh, documentary feel, which in that film, which was a drama, it, you know, you never had the idea that there was a documentary crew there filming everything because it would have made sense. And the show The Office the whole premise of the office was, okay, there's a documentary crew filming what goes on in this office. And so they camera the uh, actors uh, in the in the office occasionally would even turn to the camera and do asides to the camera as if it was a documentary filmmaker there. That doesn't happen in succession. But they have this twitchy camera feel that the close-ups, you know, do zoom-ins and reframes, uh, stuff that we would normally end up on the editing room floor they put in uh, to give it uh, maybe a more exciting uh, feel, but it just took me out of the uh, out of of the show completely, out of the drama. If you want to look at a perfectly uh, framed and uh, dynamics of frame camera movement, uh, look at Shawshank Redemption, Frank Darabont, 
pays careful attention to accentuating the drama by a slow, slow creep in or a slow, slow dolly across something to accentuate the drama and heighten the drama in a scene. And by slightly changing the framing on a very slow basis, you can really uh, add to a scene, uh, add to the emotion of a scene and the dynamics of a scene. So that's what I just wanted to say about the dynamics of framing as well. Well observed. TJ, thoughts? Yeah, a lot of this um, goes back to what um, when I started art in college was, you know, basic rules of composition and, you know, the rule of thirds and um, how you position the subject or the focal point of the piece of art that you are looking at. And, um, you know, it's it's worth examining a lot of um, uh, what, you know, the old masters, uh, the, the portraits that were done um, in the Renaissance period where a lot of what we're seeing today in a lot of TV and film were pioneered by the paintings that were done back, you know, hundreds of years ago. And I, I Courtney was talking about um, specific framing in, in, in shows that, you know, uh, you know, like the Shawshank where everything is really beautifully composed. I want to highlight a show um, that really breaks a lot of the rules of composition, and that's Mr. Robot. Um, if you haven't seen Mr. Robot, a lot of what they do is just wildly strange um you know you'll have a, a person lower right corner looking out of the frame and just huge amount of negative space behind them completely breaking what would be a normal composition but they're doing it on purpose to really just give a sense of you know like bring uncomfortableness to some of the things they're doing it, it's it's really worth looking at mitchell yeah i wanted to comment on courtney's uh, example of succession I think they broke every rule in a book in order to make you feel uncomfortable because the conversation was uncomfortable. The family dynamics that were involved uh, in the show were uncomfortable and it just, it translated back. The complete opposite of that is if you look back at the old West Wing, uh, Aaron Sorkin uh, production, I just rewatched it. It took me a month to do it. Now, all those walk and talk shots that they do where they're passing dialogue off to another, somebody's going in the opposite direction. It just gave me, it was smooth, but it just gave me the impression things were happening, constantly happening. There's constant motion. Um, and it was wild. And uh, I just watched a new series, I think on Netflix, called Diplomat. And I looked at it and said, ah, West Wing, because the style has already been established and it uh, works great. Yeah, I have some more examples here, and this came from a website called Shotkit. And if you want to do some, this actually started out for photographers, and some of the things they do in terms of giving you a sense of framing possibilities, it's really useful for that. And they uh, did a series where they talked about some of the things that go into this. For example, Alex was mentioning the use of negative space. A big deal in framing, and good cinematographers really understand this very, very well. You don't have to just stick the big head in the center of the frame or even pushed off to one side. You can do that as we saw in Harry Potter and focus on the actors, but there's a lot more than that. You can also, uh, I see a lot of cinematographers use people as a framing method. They will have one character, not just in the over-the-shoulder shot, but in something like this, they will have two characters and they will give you that intimate look at what's happening in the background by framing something like that. A trick I use a good little bit is using natural elements as a frame. That's another possibility for a way to look at that. 
architecture. And boy, I just had a big experience with that because at Comic-Con, which takes place in this beautiful building, uh, I used 90% of my shots had architectural elements in that because I understand that was the environment that this event happens in. And I had something really cool to do. We sometimes think of shapes. We don't as often think of color. But color can be a balancing element to draw your eye to different things in the frame. I mean, I'm not sure we'd be looking at the woman on the, uh, the stage left, the, the right side of the frame, as we look at it so much if her color didn't pop out of everything. Uh, another thing I used at Comic-Con a lot, just kind of instinctively, was the shape of the person that you're working to change the composition. If her arms were down rather than up, this would be a very different compositional shot. Um, he talks about using light and shadow, and that is something, this, this is why everything goes into making a shot beautiful. Your lighting crew or the people who bring reflectors and things like that to pop up a subject out of an otherwise neutral-looking scene can be very important to framing shots well. Uh, props. You know, is there something that you can use, like the umbrella on the right side of this shot, to really draw the viewer's eye to that intimate moment and say, you know, these people are in love probably because who else would be sharing a transparent umbrella in a rainstorm? It's a beautiful piece. Uh, we talked about out-of-focus elements, you know, in the whole foreground in this shot is out of, out of focus. And one last one, which I thought was interesting, uh, it mentions using a sense of depth. Well, how do you create that? Somebody very cleverly in this shot used it by taking the security mirror and finding that intimacy in the shot by using a reflection off of window or something like that. So these are just some of the things that people who are really good at shot framing expand beyond, I'm just pointing my camera at two people and I'm just going to now point it at something else and something else. They really stop, they sit back, they look around them, and they say, what are the possibilities for me as someone making this image for the world to see? What are the possibilities? What are the techniques I can use to focus my viewer exactly where I want them to focus? So hopefully that was useful for you. Let's uh, dig into our first generic question here. Coming Mitch? to us from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. Vincent says, canted, Dutch, tilted, angled, 1966 TV Batman fight. What is the correct terminology for composition? It is not level. Note, we currently use all of these. I'm going to use a Batman instead of a Dutch. That's great. Courtney, start us off. Yeah, Dutch angle is what we've. I've always referred to it. I've heard it referred to. I think it originally in Batman, it originated from because it came from uh, the comic book panels. If you look at you know a lot of those comic books, you notice the buildings in the background are at about a 45 degree angle in that uh, in that comic book panel from Batman. So I think they were trying to emulate uh, comic book panels, how they cut to different angles to, to depict action in a still printed matter. So we used to call them always Dutch angles. We had a, uh, on shooting commercials, a lot of times we, we had something called the, the Duke, which, because uh, the, the producer, the client would want kind of a handheld feel to the to the shot, but they didn't necessarily want it handheld. So it could do a little bit of a Dutch angle. And so we had a football, which we would put on top of the head and uh, which was a Duke football, you know, <laughs> NFL Duke football. And we'd set the camera on top of the Duke football. So the camera was static and it held at a specific height, 
but it could tilt up, down, the camera, it could dutch left or right because the football is football shaped. So it, it gave a freedom to the angle uh, without it looking too fixed and without looking handheld. So we had the Duke mount and the Dutch mounts. I love the creativity in this industry. Mitchell, thoughts? I agree with Courtney. Dutch is uh, one of my favorite uh, things when I can get away with using it. And the other thing I'd just like to quickly point out is that all of these angles and names and slang terms um, go way back. Some may be as many as 50 or 60 years uh, as they were established, and they're still being used. So it's not dependent upon the technology. It's dependent upon um, you know how you uh, frame a shot that, that really counts, and that's never going to change. So we carry these names through a huge continuum. Yeah. Alex? I will say with with these types of shots, um, I, I'd be very careful with them. Um, you know, so uh, with great power comes great responsibility, and um, people screw these shots up a lot. And so you just want to be careful of it looks like you don't know what you're doing very, very fast. So um, use them with care. Um, definitely think that and generally if I'm shooting something for post, if I'm going to do something that's a that's some kind of Dutch angle or something that I got excited about, I'm always going to shoot a straight one too, um, just to make sure that that if if I if the um, the excitement that I had when I was there wears off, I still want the regular shot too. <laughs> so. Point well taken. There was a while a while where we saw uh, shaky cam, uh, particularly in the early years of MTV. It seemed like everyone shooting for that just they couldn't they they wanted all tripods out of the building and they wanted everything handheld. And at some point, for young people probably watching it it seemed more exciting and more vibrant more alive but it also got to the point where a lot of people were going please just stop rolling the camera around and let me look at this scene particularly a scene that is interesting in itself because it's framed well and it's lit well you know i don't need to swing into it land there for half a second and swing away it was a pretty thing to look at uh, mitchell your thoughts yeah to alex's point uh it's interesting how much you can change if it, with options in post that you couldn't do back in the day when you had to shoot it, and that was the way it was. If you're uh, shooting 4K and posting at 1080, you've got a lot of latitude there. You could create a Dutch angle or do a snap or do something else in post, so it's something to be considered. Point well taken. Courtney? Yeah, there are, and there are, of course, I, I advise against, as Alex says, use it sparingly, and I advise against actually tilting the camera during the shot. You can cut to a Dutch angle, but when you tilt it, it throws everybody off kilter and it feels like somebody's moving the room. They actually make uh, the, here's a, a Dutch angle camera head. It's designed with rollers that can uh, tilt, you know, Dutch the camera left and right about 40 degrees. And uh, it has rollers uh, and it's arranged so that it will move about the nodal point of the head. So that keeps the center of the lens centered in the Dutch angle as opposed to just shifting it to the left or the right of the uh, center of gravity of your shot. But, uh, they do make them, they do use them, and I have seen swing adapters on many heads because a lot of DPs like to use them every now and then. But don't yeah. do it during the middle of the shot. <laughs> For me, the, uh, the, the key test was always, could I articulate why? I want to execute this shot. Why do you want a Dutch angle here? Do you have a reason? If you can say, because the character is sick and I want to make the audience feel slightly uneasy, okay, I'll buy into that. But if the answer is because it looks cool, it might not, or it might for a part of the audience, but it might equally turn off a part of the audience such that 
they're going to come out of the suspension of disbelief that movies are so wonderful about creating where you're inside the story as opposed to on the outside watching it. And these things all tend to risk that when they see something they don't usually see in their real life, which is your head straight up looking at a scene on a reasonable level. Um, you're putting your suspension of disbelief at risk, in my opinion. Let's go to the next question. From Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, Jack asked, with the upcoming Apple Vision Pro on the horizon, do we need to think differently about camera framing, bokeh, and how it relates to spatial audio? Like a Kurosawa film, we can change viewers' focus with blocking and changes in spatial audio. Yeah, it's, I think it's going to have some effects. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that you're going to find when people are shooting, number one is we, I think we are going to see some more stereo uh, work that, that's happening. Um, but I also think that uh, you're going to find that the single point of view camera, so instead of cutting between lots of cameras, um, the kind of things that are going to look really, really good are a single camera in just the right place. And, and for the most part, that camera wants to be about 10 to 15 feet from the subject because then what that does is it creates the 3D effect really, really effectively. <laughs> you see, really feel like you're there. As you get further away, you don't buy as much. Um, and as you get closer, it starts to feel a little cramped, but you can't do it for effect every once in a while. But 10 or 15 feet from that subject um, is is a really great space in about where you'd be at eye line. And so I think that that is going to change the way we think about things um, as we develop those. A lot of times I think what we're going to end up doing is shooting a regular 16 by 9 uh, shot that multi-camera for an event and then have one camera that's placed exactly where it needs to be um, to make that happen. It'll be interesting. Courtney. Yeah, as far as, as a the Apple Vision Pro or any VR type goggle type setup uh, that gives you, uh, you know, a 3D volume that you can look around in. Uh, the problem has been for dramatic films. And I saw some examples. I used to work a lot for a company here in town that did volumetric video. So they recorded on green screen the actors doing their lines, et cetera. And then they put them in a three-dimensional CGI set and they would do a dramatic scene. The problem with this is since the viewer puts on the goggles, can choose the camera position because it was recorded in 360 degree and from every angle, overhead, high, low, everywhere. You can move your point of view anywhere. Uh, it was driven by the spatial audio. You mentioned spatial audio because you have to have cues to where to look. Uh, and if it's a dramatic scene and you have another character approaching on horseback from behind you, and if you're not looking, if you're looking at the other character, you don't know that there's somebody coming up behind you unless you cue them with a, a spatial sound effect that you hear over your shoulder. So you'll turn around and look and say, oh, there's somebody coming into the scene. I need to take a look at that. Uh, rather than the having the editor choose to show you when to cut away to something to, to reveal to the audience when the action's going to change or something's about to happen. Uh, so it makes it very difficult for the viewer to, uh, to pick, you know, to follow a dramatic scene uh, based on, you know, he doesn't know where to look because he doesn't know what's coming. And the only way to know what's coming is to use spatial audio to cue them ahead of time. And it made it so difficult and so hard. And I sat through a 10 or 15 minute uh, demonstration of this at the company that was shooting it. And uh, it was crazy. I understand why they're now bankrupt. And if you're watching this show, um, 
and you didn't watch yesterday, I would highly suggest you go back and watch through yesterday. It was really interesting uh, from the sound design perspective about how sound, exactly the point that Courtney was making, how sound design in any kind of immersive video circumstance is just critical to making sure that the audience stays oriented in terms of the story and what's happening around you. Alex? Yeah, and the, the, I think the challenge, we've done a lot of 360 work, and the, the, I know we're kind of varying, <laughs> veering from the standard camera framing, but when we talk about 360, um, so we've done a lot of 360, and what we learned was in the same way that we, we went from, from stage to, to camera, we suddenly realized we had a whole bunch of new things to do. And if you kept on shooting just stage um, events with a camera, it was really boring. You were just like, I don't okay. Because um, we were trying to take a new medium and an old medium and push it into a new medium. And in the same way with the 360, what we found is that traditional filmmaking and traditional storytelling didn't really work. Um, and so what you had to do is think about how are we going to create something? And we're not really trying to create another uh, movie, we're creating an experience, you know, and that experience is of something. So a couple of ways that we've done that is the thing that we found really, really interesting is doing something in a scene that the user can explore that isn't necessarily trying to drive you to a story. It's just letting you explore that scene, you know, and so it's so for instance, we had one where we had um, a runway, like runway models, and we had uh, runway models getting their makeup done and their hair you know, over behind you in one corner. So if you think about it from above, you know, we had a runway here like this and we had hair and makeup here and we had them dressing, re, you know, getting into the next outfit, but behind, of course, a screen. <laughs> we didn't show you that part. Um, and then we had some producers over here talking and we had a couple things happening over here and you're standing right here in a 360 and you see them coming up. And so, and then they they go off and they do this thing and they, and they were doing this kind of big circle around you. Uh, the loop or the the experience was, you know, um, everything would be a full loop in a couple minutes, two or three minutes. But you, but people would spend a lot of time in that 360 because they're exploring different things, different aspects of what happened there. And so, um, in the same way, we we pitched one that didn't end up getting shot. But one of the things that we were looking at is the also the idea that something happens, like a detective kind of thing. Someone comes out and while you're watching, you're kind of watching and trying to figure out what's going on. You're looking at the people that are there and then someone shoots somebody else. <laughs> like, you know, like it's just like, boom, it just happens. But then you can rewind or, or go forward or it loops and you have to keep watching like, how did that occur? Like this person got into a fight over here and you, ha and you could figure out what happened, but it, it creates a 20 or 30 minute experience out of a two minute clip, you know? And so the idea is, is that you're experiencing something. You're not necessarily doing a linear solution. And I think that we're going to see more and more with 360 of experiencing a, a, a space, not shooting a movie. And maybe you have, maybe that space is um, a segment of that movie, you know, like later as an extra or something like that. Or maybe that's just what, where, what you go into. But I think it, you want to stop thinking about, I, mean, I, I don't I think people need to stop thinking about a linear idea and really think about how do you experience things from one place to the next. Courtney. Yeah, Alex is right. You really in a 360 video type situation, you have to be a participant in the storyline. 
uh, because uh, or, 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 and it I works great for well, like if you have a an escape room would be a perfect uh, virtual virtual escape room would be a perfect application for 360 video, where you you look around, you find clues, you uh, work your way toward a solution um, that is based on you, not on what other characters are necessarily doing in the room. The exception to this would be what he mentioned, like a, a murder mystery, where there are clues that could be happening behind you and you don't see them unless you rewind it and go back, but they ha you have to have that ability to alter time as well, to go back in time and look somewhere else where you weren't looking, because right. exactly. nobody's controlling your point of view. And Alex, you know, I, I would love to see a movie like Baraka or Simsara. You know, those are, these are uh, movies that were really experiences. Um, they weren't really a movie. They were, they, they, they did tell a story. So they told a story inside of it. Um, by the way, those are two of my favorite films <laughs> to sit and just watch. Um, shot, I think, on 70 millimeter. I mean, just incredible um, shooting um, with music. And, and it tells a story, but it tells a story through experiencing spaces. And I would love to shoot Baraka again in 360 where you're experiencing that or 180, where you're really just there in that moment. I think it'd be really interesting. Next question. And it's Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asking, the angle of a shot must be considered with framing. You make a subject powerful, equal, or diminutive, depending upon the camera angle. Yes, Andy, that is definitely part of it. TJ? Yeah, depending on how you position your camera relative your, to your subject. Um, here's an example of a photograph that I did. Um, and this was a uh, young executive, and I took the picture from slightly lower so that um, just to give a subtle look where she's kind of looking down to make her look a little more powerful, but not too extreme that she's looking down upon everybody. Um, a, a really good movie that um, does a lot of this is Lord of the Rings. Uh, depending on which character tends to be the focus, who is the, um, you know, if it's, if it's focused on Gandalf and his point of view of the movie, you see shots from up high and kind of looking down on the hobbits. But then when it's from the hobbit point of view, it, the camera tends to be a little bit lower and looking more up to kind of give the perspective of the more diminutive character. Mitchell. One of the uh, examples of this uh, being used is a thing now. Uh, if you watch any superhero movie, they do the classic superhero landing. And that's usually a low camera angle where the character comes in at high speed and lands as a slight crouch and is supported by on th at three points, like their, their arm or their elbow or their two feet. Spider-Man did it quite a bit. And it, it just imparts a huge amount of energy. And the funny thing about it is now every superhero character has to have that shot somewhere in the movie. Alex. Yeah, a couple of things that are kind of interesting uh, with, with some of these. Um, and one of my favorite, well, I don't think we're going to get into it today, but one of my favorite shots, I think the favorite scenes is the Kung Fu scene in The Matrix. It is a master class on framing. Every frame there matters. And, and what it's telling in that story, whether it's wide, whether it's close, how it's framed there is a um, is just a really, really great. You could do it. We could do a whole second hour. Maybe someday we'll do that. Um, but a whole second hour just on that. I used to do a whole class just on that one scene. But look at how they use a wide shot, pushing in, pulling out, uh, how they frame with, with the body. All the things we're talking about are all in one scene um, that's there. A couple things to think about also is, uh, generally, you'll find that the camera is at shoulder height of the main character of the scene. 
So generally, there that that it'll be just a little lower than them. It makes everyone feel a little bit bigger um, than 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 what they are. And so generally, that camera is not at eye line, but at, uh, just a little lower than eye line, and it makes everyone feel just a little bit larger. Um, and, that, and and if you start paying attention to it, you'll notice it. The other thing to look at is when you think about framing and the angle of the shot is a lot of times people use that to mask things. So for instance, as someone who works has worked with a lot of news organizations. Um, I know that if I see, I can see certain angles and if I see a camera up high, I will immediately assume there wasn't very many people at that protest. <laughs> so, 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 you know, so what happened was, is that it's a very common thing to do is, is I want to cover something. I want to make it look like there's a lot more people than there are. And I'll, I'll pull the camera up. So if I see that camera and it feels like it's above people's heads, I immediately will, uh, will understand that, oh, there weren't that many people there and they're trying to make a good frame. They're trying to fill the frame with people because if they went down lower, you'd see that there's like 10 of them, you know, you know or 15 of them. And so you want to pay attention to how news organizations as well, use those cameras to fill out their story. You know, it's not, a, you know, it's, it's not going to get very, not get, not going to be that interesting. If you see 10 people sitting there with little signs, the people are going to be like, and if they shoot wide and there are only 10 people there, then that means that the news organization wanted you to feel like it wasn't a big deal. You know, so, so the way that they frame those things, you have to understand not just in filming, but in the way that we frame news, um, they are telling a story with their cameras and their camera angles. And you want to pay attention to them as you, as you watch. And, and actually to follow on with that, yes, when you get press kits from politicians, you will never see an angle allow, you know, given to you that doesn't show the, the, the principle in their actual best light. So the, the techniques Alex talking about, you know, they want to make that principle look in control, in command, articulate, and the rest of that. And so everything in that press kit, that video press kit, uh, is designed to, to push out that message. It's, it's kind of what we're dealing with in the world of uh, political media these days is everybody's trying to make whoever well, their principal is look the best they possibly can. And I just want to point out, when I say that about the camera angles, that's the last 50 years. <laughs> you know, like, so yeah. not, not the last, that's They're not new. That There's nothing yeah. new. It's the last 50, 60 years. The, the, the camera angles are pointing to tell, tell the story so that it gets you know, more advertising dollars. Yeah, I guess my point was that it used to be that you relied on the media or other people to shoot those shots. Now you're relying on... But I'm saying, the, the, but the media's been doing that, what I'm talking about. For the last 50, 60 years, you know, like it's not, there's nothing, you know, the media does that because it's, it's a better story. They're, they're telling, but they're telling, they're still, I think we always want to make sure that we're clear that, and, and I'm just saying in general, it, it's not a conspiracy thing. It's just people just doing what they're doing to tell a good story. But just remember that what you see may not be a lie, but it may not be true either. You know, like, you know, yeah. and, and you just have to always take, you know, just, just read through that filter. I'll go back and watch Citizen Kane, which yeah. talked exactly about this. Uh, next question. Jack Rupel from Breckenridge, Colorado asked, with 180 degree video content framing, would that mean not where the camera is pointed, but the depth of field focus? Panel, please discuss. Alex, start us off. Generally, your your main subject is still going to be in the center of a 180 shot. So you're not going to necessarily have people looking over to one side or the other. Everything's going to be generally in focus uh, because that's the way that the 180, I mean, the 180 is so, um, the depth of field is almost infinite, not quite. Um, and so, um, but, but I think that you're going to, um, but you're still going to focus generally because that's where the highest resolution is for the camera. The lens is going to distort more and be softer on the edges than they are in the center. Courtney? Yeah, generally a wide angle lens means large depth of field there. The exception of this was they came out with something called a planoptic camera 
or light field camera that used these micro lenses on the uh, sensor itself, you know, a thousand or so micro lenses, so that it, it captured a whole bunch of wide angle shots at different focal lengths. And then software then reconstructs that uh, that image in uh, in the viewer. Uh, Lytro was a camera that came out that was a light field camera that used this uh, technique so that you could choose your depth of field or your focus. Uh, so everything was either in focus or out of focus in every each one of those little uh, those little lenses that was uh, <laughs> formed on that light field or, or could, could be constructed from the focused light on those uh, from all those little lenses. So uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out to be very useful. And Lytro failed in 2018, I think. Uh, and so it just didn't it just didn't take off because the consumer didn't want to decide where to focus the lens. It just didn't work. I mean, Lytro was like the Theranos of cameras. <laughs> Less fraud, but yeah. yeah. (laughs) They kept on telling us what was going to be possible, and they showed us. It also never actually worked. You know, that's what the camera looked like. It looked like a little uh, something you get out of a cereal box. I bought one. I bought into it. I thought I bought a couple of them. (laughs) I mean, so it's not like I didn't, but I bought them when they were like on a fire sale or something like that. But, but I, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> it just, it just never really worked. The idea behind it was so much more powerful than the technology. And that was the, I mean, we all knew what we wanted, uh, but, but what they were trying to do, cause I was, always, I was like really excited about it because people have been trying to do what they were doing for like the last 40 years. And, uh, it just, it's always hard. It's the edges that are hard. So, uh, you're either when you define the edges in pixels or anything else, it's just hard to get that soft edge. And that's where everything fell apart for everybody. That's what's always fallen apart is the, is, is edges between depths. Yeah. It's a funny thing for me. That's exactly why I still try to go to Comic-Con and shoot it because I spend most of my time in the video world and I'm thinking about the, the motion of everything, how scenes develop, where does it start? Where does it go to? What's the point we're making with that whole series of shots with still photography, you're trying to find a decisive moment that is arranged exactly the way you like it. And it was real interesting. I've taught a lot of still photographers, or at least um, helped them understand that difference in video, that you're no longer finding the moment. You have to find this progression. You have to start them in the story somewhere and advance the story by the time you get to your last frame. It is just a different way of thinking. They're both incredibly hard arts to master, but they're really fascinating to me and I'll always be interested in it. Let's go to the next question. Paul Wallace at Austin, Texas asked, discuss framing extreme backlit portrait shots, for example, with intense sunlight. Uh, TJ, start us out. So when you're doing um, any kind of picture with where the subject is backlit, um, you can take two approaches. Um, One, you can do uh, more of a silhouette effect, um, which... Um, is this particular shot here that I had done several years ago where the sun is literally behind their heads and is um, silhouetting them. The other uh, approach you can take is using that intense light from behind as sort of a fill light or a a hair light, as it were, and and use the natural light. But then you have to put um, light in front of the subject to light the front of them, whether that's a person or an object or what have you. Uh, good answers. Let's go. Oh, Courtney, you had a thought. Well, if you want to see an example of something like this, look at Hateful Eight, uh, Tarantino's film. 
he lit the thing. It's a period piece, and he lit the thing with with bounced light, with strong light. Uh, and even their their inside makes no sense. The lighting makes no sense whatsoever in the situation because they're inside inside a room for ninety percent of the uh, thing, and it's an old room lit by uh, firelight and lanterns. Yet there is bright white light that is coming shaft that's coming down from the ceiling in this closed room in the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, that hits a table and then bounces off the table, and that's what illuminates the actors. So you have this bright white light uh, that kind of forms a halo around the actors, and then their faces are nicely, softly illuminated from underneath uh, by the reflected light off the furniture and the desks and, I mean, the tables and whatever's around. Uh, so it gives you a nice, soft light, reflective light. And I know a lot of DPs that love, fell in love with this kind of look uh, with, you know, using a xenon lamp and flying, you know, uh, blasting it into a white card that's just out of frame below the actors. So it looks like they're it, it lit from below. It looks very naturalistic. It gives you that very naturalistic uh, look as if you're being lit, not by fixtures in the room, but by sunlight coming through the window and bouncing off the things around you radiant. Yeah, in, I shot a lot outdoors, and in Arizona, it, it's a constant challenge because the light is so strong, it's so harsh, that bounce fill was something you heard on my sets a lot. Uh, if I had a principal in front of the camera, we would try to bounce light up at him or her to, in, to get that actor um, up, elevated up in terms of just their exposure to the point where you could do something with it at post. Much easier now in the HDR environment. Uh, the cameras are better. In fact, this this shot I took last week at Comic-Con, uh, I was able to use just a tiny bit of vignetting to bring the young lady's face up out of that incredible whiteness of the hat and still get detail in the hat elements. That would have been virtually impossible to do with the cameras I shot in for most of my career because the split between extreme brightness and extreme darkness in without much light on the face was just really hard to achieve. So we can do more, and I'm looking forward as we move into H, more and more H, sophistication in the HDR cameras we're able to shoot. I mean, I was able to shoot that shot on my iPhone because it has an HDR mode, and it's capturing that range of light that was impossible to catch back in the earlier days with less sophisticated computational cameras. It's getting easier to do these things, but boy, it's still something that you, as a shooter, you should notice every time you look through that lens and say, what's my exposure difference between the background and the foreground? And am I going to be able to pull my subject up out of that so I can direct their eyes where I want them to? Let's go to the next question. Robert Sababody in Poland. Panel, you talked about framing in films and photography. Can you do a similar talk on framing in meetings, conferences, and office hours, please? Alex. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk. I'll do an overview. I actually reading this question, I was like, we could do a whole nother second hour just on that. Like, I think that um, rather than we were talking more about film framing and photography, which I think we needed to talk about here. But I think that we'll talk about this, but I'll give you some a couple things that we think about in this area. But I do think that, um, that this is a whole second hour. So we'll write this down and we'll put this in somewhere in a month or two. We'll come back to it and we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, so uh, a couple of things. One is 
for office hours, we're all framed in the center. And the reason we're framed in the center is very specifically because we fit into a super source. <laughs> so, so that's why. So when you see broadcast, broadcast, you know, film will, will oftentimes lean one on a third. It'll be on this third or this third. It's not going to be, we're not going to center people very often in film, but we do in TV. And the reason we do that in TV is because we're putting them into windows. Um, so especially live television, we're going to put in, we're going to create super sources and we're going to have, we're going to be in that window. And so we want to keep everybody, we want their head to be about the same size um, and we also want them to be centered um, so they look good in those frames. Um, so that's really where that comes from as far as framing and off, oftentimes we want the lighting to not be very dramatic. We want the lighting to be fairly flat um, and the reason again is so that people fit together more effectively in a super source. So that is the reason that we see that for office hours and, and how we have that set up. Um, when it comes to conferences, one of the big challenges that we have are wandering speakers. <laughs> so speakers who wander around on the stage, they're meandering around and everything else. What a lot of times we do when we um, when we get into this is we try to teach speakers like, hey, so here's the, I'm going to tell you a secret about how to do this. Like this is usually how I, how my conversation goes. So, you know, I do a lot of these and let me tell you, there's a, there's a way to do this that, that makes you look smarter, better, all these other things. And, and here's the deal. If you, here's our stage and I'll tell them if you're going to, if you just wander around all over while you're talking without any kind of plan, um, what's going to happen is that we have to keep you in what's called a cowboy shot the whole time. So we have to keep you about thigh up the whole time or wide shots all the time because we can't follow you because we don't know where you're going to go next. And so you're going to walk out of frame and in frame. So we can't get close up. Now, if you, uh, if we take that same frame and we, um, if you do this where you, and, I, and I'm usually, I'm standing on the stage with them. If you, if we mark, a, mark some spots that you want to be at when you say things, um, we mark those out. Now, when you're, when you, when you want to make a point, stop on that mark and look out and say what you're, what you want to say and then, and really make your point. And when we, when you do that, we can now do a close up on you. So we can do shoulder up, close up, short depth of field. You're going to look amazing and you're going to make your point. When you're setting up that point for the next point, you know, walk over to another place that you want to be. So you're still covering it. People still feel like you're covering the stage, but go find your next space while you're building up for the next thing. But when you want to make the point again, stop and look out. And as you do it, we're going to get good at figuring out how, you know, as we rehearse it, we'll know where you're going to be, but we're going to once again, give you that close up, and we're going to make it, make you look great. And so, and we'll know what camera, we'll know all those things when you get, when you go over to this point, I know that this camera is your close up. If you're over here, I might know that this camera is your close up. And we'll, we'll rehearse it that way. Um, you can tell speakers who have been trained to do that or not, because the speakers who aren't, who are not just wander around. <laughs> and the speakers who, who are trained properly for pre presentation, and just to put it in perspective, most speakers are never trained properly. They're corporate C-level, C-suite that show, you started practicing a couple days ago, and they're not really um, doing that kind of thing. So, but, but when they're trained to do that, they, um, they definitely look so much better. It's also why when you see someone in front of a podium, we can make them look really, really good. I don't like podiums in general, but we love them because it keeps them planted. And now we can do these um, frames. One of the things about podiums is that drives us crazy is, um, is that you have a podium here and you have a, per and you have a speaker here and you have a little sign that says whatever your show is and people will frame it like this because they really want to make sure this is in the shot. 
You can do graphics for that. Like you can put that somewhere else, put a little thing, never do this. Like this is a horrible thing to do. It makes the person look really small and that's not what you want. <laughs> so you want to make them look big. So you want to frame them here like this so that you can really see them in that process. But don't frame that front, that front little piece and, oh, don't frame the person standing here and there's a step and repeat, which is the worst. Step and repeat is like, I am old and and have not progressed for the last 30 years. Like step step and repeat is just horrible. Um, and uh, so you have all the step and repeat and they'll want to frame the step and repeat. Here's the deal. If you're controlling this, put a logo where you want it to be in the background and then, but set set your frame first and then figure out where your logo is going to be. And that frame should be of the person and then if you want that there, or better yet, put a graphic over top of it and you don't have to have the step and repeat. The step and repeat's fine for red carpets because that's what they want to make sure that no matter what angle you get, the logos show up. It's just, it's debris. I mean, it's it's just a, it's a and it's really bad for live streaming because it's a lot of data that gets moved around. If you move the camera, it lowers it. Final thing I'll say is that when we talk about round tables for these conferences, you have circles here. You, 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 there's a, we want to split our cameras as wide as we can if you think about a person's face, if my camera's on this side looking over, I want to see the far corner of the far eye, like on every shot. Like I never want to see a profile photo. So everything I do with my cameras is to make sure I never, ever, ever miss that far eye. Um, and that makes it feel much more connected. And when you see people's bad versions of those, you'll see lots of profiles. Uh, great information there. Uh, Courtney, have a thought? Grammar police, grammar police, Alex. Uh, what did I it's, say? It's commonly mis it's commonly misused the term podium for a lectern. A lectern uh -huh. is the thing that's in front of the person that the person stands behind. The podium is the thing they're standing on, which is a little riser that rises them up off the ground. So, a lot of people make that mistake, and it's almost become common use to call <laughs> yeah, I've never, the podium. But hopefully, I've heard, the fine is we not have like to get our terminology from, correct from the podium precise. There we go. I'll never <laughs> make that out. mistake again until tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that that we talked in one of the other episodes about blocking and what Alex is talking about, hit your mark. You heard that on a thousand Hollywood sets. Everybody who's a real professional at this understands exactly the point he was making. Your mark is over there. The DP or the, the person operating the camera understands there has to be a shot set that when you hit your mark, it looks right. And that's how you, you execute the kind of things we're talking about. Very important. Let's go to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, when working with inexperienced camera operators, should you use the proper names of shots or use more headroom, more lead room, and the like? Uh, Alex. Usually when we're starting with folks, I'm just, I tell them what nose room is, what headroom is, what, you know, I tell them the basics, waist up, uh, you know, shoulder up, full, you know, full body, um, knees up. I, I use some very simple things when I'm in the first time I use it. Cause I usually, I oftentimes walk in and I've got four hours, you know, two to four hours to get camera operators ready that sometimes have never used a camera. So, so I, um, and so I have to ramp them up very quickly. And so I keep with real basics, um, there now, when we sit around afterwards and we look at how things worked, I start telling them what those terms are for those things. But at the very first pass, I don't. But then after that, we start going, and I'll say, you know, give me a cowboy shot. That's a neat, you know, like, and I'll, and I'll, I'll say it right after it, after that. And then after a while, you can start to ask for the shots that you need. But it takes a couple passes. Courtney? Uh, yeah, more headroom are two words that strike fear into all sound mixers. Uh, 
hearts. Um, <laughs> they, uh, because they probably have an overhead boom in the shot. They're exactly. trying to get the mic as close as exactly. possible Those to the person. Those are the two words mouth. you don't want to hear from the director. More headroom. Oh, gosh, no, please, no more headroom. Anyway, uh, you, using jargon on the set is, is can be difficult. And, and you it can not only be working with a new cameraman, but uh, you find directors from other countries, say, have different terms for, uh, you know, things on the set and how to compose a shot. And like they say, turn over instead of a roll camera. And, you know, the first time you work on the set with a British director and they go, turn over, you go, turn over what? (laughs) And uh, a lot of times they'll say, save it instead of cut. So you got to watch out for the jargon because it's regional. And uh, as well as being a specific, you know, it's evolved out of Hollywood over the years. So something descriptive like more headroom or, you know, more air on the right, you know, gives more open up the shot to the right, you know, makes more sense because uh, it'll be easily understood. And you don't have to depend on that person understanding the jargon that you use wherever you came from. Next question. All Wallows in Austin, Texas has a question. Uh, discuss framing headshots where you clip the top of the forehead for a cool effect. Uh, <laughs> I laughed because I've used that a couple of times on people who are, uh, as we say, follically challenged. But there's a lot of reasons to do it, TJ. Um, yes, being follically challenged myself, um, I, I don't uh, use it on myself necessarily. But um, it's done to uh, think of it like the extreme close-up, where you really want to get um, a, a tight shot of somebody's face to be, you know, either see the emotion or clearly see the face. Um, as in this example here, you know, I frame this shot um, tight just to get, um, you know, better, you know, more impact of the subject's face in the in the photograph. Um, you know, again, just think of it as the extreme close-up you see in a lot of TV shows. It's a similar thing. And again, you, you frame it that way because you want to keep the eyes at the one-third mark generally. And you see like all of our frames here, our eyes are about one-third down on the screen. And when you get in that close, you end up cutting off the top of the head and sometimes even part of the bottom. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, a German company, has created an AI-based platform that can track players in a field and manage cameras autonomously. For smaller productions, can you see tools like that becoming popular? Alex, I know you're playing with some sports stuff out there. Do you have yeah, I mean, I, I, there is the difference between what we see for most of primetime and then we, what we see, like all the high school games and the college games and all the other things, I think you're going to see a, more and more of these AI type things take over those areas where we only had one camera operator anyway. Now we can take two or three cameras, have it know what to do with the soccer game. Um, and, and it may not be creative, but it will be better than what was there before. And I think that's where AI is really going to dig in very quickly is taking over things that were not super creative that were underfunded and simply make it something that you just turn on and it just does the thing. And I think that more and more, you'll see that more and more as we move forward. Uh, Courtney. Courtney. Yeah. For a lot of YouTubers out there, they're now taking advantage of these uh, uh, framing devices from PTZ cameras that can track your head or track any object that's moving in the frame and follow it. Some of them even have a little dongle that you carry in your pocket, a little RF beacon that you stick in your pocket. So even if you walk behind a, a wall or something, it knows where you are in 3D space and can pan the camera so that when you come out from behind the wall, you'll be center frame. 
Uh, so a lot of YouTubers that don't have camera operators and go up and set up their camera out in the desert somewhere and do a long walk and talk or something, they can do it without having to hire a crew. And so it is becoming more and more popular uh, and it's become cheaper to the, to the point that almost all, all uh, PTZ cameras have some degree of uh, uh, AI involved that can do camera tracking of some sort. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. How do you use grids and framing shots? Uh, Mitchell, why don't you take us off? Sure. If you took your screen and cut it into thirds, uh, you're going to have three across and three on the side. And uh, generally, the top third, the line that's created is your eye line. And generally, we use it for our chin line, the bottom third. And um, that usually, like 90% of the time, will take care of framing faces. And TJ. Uh, yeah, exactly what Mitch said. The The rule of thirds is a common um, composition uh, artifact or effect. And um, a lot of cameras will have, a. you can actually like turn on a grid so you can see the grid either in the viewfinder or like on the back of your, your cell phone, the, you know, the camera app will have that. And um, once you get sort of good at kind of knowing that composition and how to do that, then you can kind of turn that grid off. Next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael, uh, camera framing. In this article about shooting Oppenheimer, the DP, director of photography, mentioned needing to shoot a T1.4 and not a T4 due to low light. What does this mean? Okay, we're going to get into T-stops here. Uh, TJ and Courtney, TJ? Uh, yeah, in cinematography, um, they use T-stop instead of an F-stop. T-stop is a little more uh, better accurate representation of the amount of light that is actually hitting the film or the sensor as opposed to an F-stop. And uh, Courtney, real quick. Yeah, because they shot it on IMAX film, 15 perf IMAX film, which is a huge area. And the film is an ASA 500, I think, they shot with. So they're limited in the response of that film. So they need a wider aperture of T1.4 instead of T4 uh, to get enough light to expose the film. So, it, you know, they have to pour a lot of light in there and they wanted to shoot a naturalistic looking lighting. So faster lenses mean narrower depth of field. And to expose that huge area of film for the IMAX camera, they needed a wide aperture lenses uh, to, to get good exposure. All right. It's been a fascinating discussion today. Thank you, everybody on the panel who has come in today, as always. A couple of announcements for coming up tomorrow. Don't forget, uh, Friday, Boomerang Carnets. Uh, those of you who are traveling with gear, particularly if you're planning to travel overseas, the discussion tomorrow will be critical for you because Carnets are incredibly important for making sure that you can leave with your equipment and, more importantly, come back without being hit by tariffs and things like that because uh, somebody at the customs port thinks you're actually importing stuff you bought overseas. Saturday, disability brainstorming. So uh, this has been an amazing series uh, on our disability coverage on Saturday. So please come back tomorrow for that. Uh, I've heard from family and friends that this has just been an extraordinary thing. I've been working on Saturday, so I haven't been able to watch it, but I'm going to try my hardest to watch it tomorrow. Thank you all to everybody who makes office hours possible. Thanks to our producers, the panelists, the crew, the back end folks, always working really hard. Don't forget After Hours runs 24-7 and we will see you tomorrow. Roll credits. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeBan. There you go. I told you for my close-up.